This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Certainly got your binge watching covered this week. It's episode 462 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. I'm going to introduce you to a bunch of different shows this week, starting with Rabbit Hole, which is going to be premiering this Sunday, March the 26th on Paramount Plus, brand new key for Sutherland series. I've got the cast and the creative team behind that show. Going to talk to them. Also going to talk to the showrunner and creator, Sean Ryan from the night agent from Netflix, which is streaming right now too, as a matter of fact, and also going to talk to Andre Anthony, who plays one of the mysterious characters, Mateo on the series. If that's not enough, you know, the big door prize is going to be premiering on Apple TV Plus on March the 29th, and I've got the cast, Chris O'Dowd and Gabrielle Dennis, to talk to on the show this week, and David West Reed, who is the showrunner of the series as well. Yeah, I'll squeeze in a few other things as the show goes on, but it's all about talking about great TV this week, starting with Rabbit Hole from Paramount Plus. I'll talk to that cast and creative team up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Audrey Spotify from Blind Spot on NBC, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Not just a conspiracy, but making you question reality as well. Rabbit Hole, the brand new series coming up from Paramount Plus, which is actually going to premiere this Sunday, March 26th. I actually got to be a part of some roundtables with the cast and creatives from the show recently to talk about everything, get you ready for this brand new Kiefer Sutherland series and another just amazing cast along with him as well. I actually want to start off with writer-directors John Requois and Glenn Fickera because they have some really, really interesting insights and can really prepare you for what the show is going to be like. So my first question actually was to them. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Good, hey, good. Doing? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you guys as well. So this, this show is so incredible. It has so many moving parts, especially with what Weird does for a living and all of the things going on. How do you put a story like this together and keep it making sense as you're going? Because there's so many moving parts here and just keeping this linear story moving. Lots of cocaine. <laughs> uh, no, uh, it, it, it's a, you know, as, as writers, it's a, it's a fun exercise to be able to plan something out. We were, we were very lucky with Paramount that they gave us a whole series order so we could work out the whole season in great detail and write all the episodes before we started rolling because it is a a Jenga of massive proportions that you have to work it out because you don't want the audience to be 
pissed off at the end. You know? Well, and also at the end of episode eight, you want them to be satisfied. You want like that we weren't just doing twists and turns for twists and turns sake, that these were all like meaningful story elements, our character elements that pay off in the final two episodes. So yeah, it was like, it, we, we were lucky to get all, all eight of them written before we started shooting. Another one of their journalists asked a very valid question is, you know, where'd you come up with the idea for a show like this? A lot of it just out of the, the headlines, really. I mean, you know, we, we, we couldn't help but notice the echoes of the sort of Watergate-era movies, you know, post-Watergate, you know, that we're in this same place where we kind of don't trust, don't trust the media, don't trust the government, don't trust, what, you know, whatever. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories afoot, and they, we seem to have recovered from that for a long time. And then when social media came along, we find ourselves right back there, and that's kind of where it all started, you know. We wanted to sort of explore how things like that can happen. Another journalist was asking about the production quality on the show and if it was meant to feel like a movie, and I agree with him, it really does. We were, that was, we were determined to make it look like a movie, and it was a struggle every day because people, <laughs> people, people are like people who work in TV are like uh, hey, it could all be so much easier <laughs> if we didn't have to like move the camera so much and do it. So we really struggled. We really pushed you know that movie look because we were, we wanted it to be fun and fast paced and entertaining like a movie is you know because that's that's what these that's what these movies that we loved and have such passion for were like. I had one more question for the guys, and this show does have flashbacks in it, so you know I had to ask about that and how much of a part they are of the story. So one of the things you guys do in this story is you utilize flashbacks to, to help tell more weird story. And sometimes viewers can tend to, you know, not like flashbacks when you when they take them out of the main story and you're going back a little bit. So how vital are these flashback scenes to the overall story, especially when it comes to Weir's character? Well, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this a few minutes ago. You know, it occurred to me that the flashbacks are... Some of the things in in the show, one of the few things in the show that is absolutely what it what it seems. You're not it's not you're not being lied to. You're not being there's nothing coy about them. So you're learning the real truth about this character who is very mysterious. And I think they're they're valuable in that regard. They're also valuable in the way uh, they were sort of used in in This Is Us, which is, you know, by 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 just giving you something about the person's past. And to see how it influences their present, it's just a really good tool. And I think audiences are really good with it now. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's a pretty common thing now. You, maybe not so much uh, 10 years ago. But. Well, it definitely worked in this story. Thank oh, you. Thanks. Next up, time to talk to the amazing cast, including Amanda Goeling, who plays Haley Winton, and the wonderful Charles Dance, who plays Dr. Ben Wilson. But I had to ask Maida about the chemistry between her character and Kiefer Sutherland's character, because it's off the charts in this show. Charles Maida, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Maida, I actually want to start with you, because one of my favorite things about this show right away was the chemistry between Haley and Weir. I just love the way that you guys went back and forth at one another. How much fun was that, working with Kiefer and being, being able to just work on that chemistry? Because I loved it. Oh, great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, the minute I met Kiefer, it was just like we were... It was just like playing a great set of tennis. Like we were just back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth. And it was just kind of, I mean, it was written on the page that way, but there's something about him and I that it, it just made it really, really easy and fun. I could tell it really We, we fight good is what it is. Oh, yes, you do. We yes, fight good. Do. We fight good. Thank you. The next journalist asked Charles Dance what it was like to play with such a brilliant and smart character. And I really, really loved Charles's response to it. I thought he was a manipulating bastard. That's um, what I thought, too. <laughs> anyway, well, that's great. I mean, no, I was like... Oh, he's a great character to play. I don't know whether I succeed, but I, I try to inject a bit of humor into him as well when I can. Trust is definitely a tricky thing when it comes to a show like Rabbit Hole. So the next journalist asked how important trust is to both Meta and Charles's characters. And yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the big themes of the show is who and what can you trust? Like, who can you trust, like, on a, on a big scale? Our governments, data, our cell phones, and then who can you trust on, on a personal level? I mean, our two characters start off pretty much hating each other, but then we kind of need to survive. And, I mean, I don't want to give it all away, but it's, it's that constant... Thing that that we're constantly playing with, like wh who do you, what do you try, what is real, what what is, I mean, because even if you think about it, like it takes a long time to get to know someone, 
you know, let alone people who are used to always manipulating situations or words or just, we're all excellent liars in the show. And so, and, and then we kind of band together. So it, it makes for interesting dynamic. Does anybody ever say, does anybody say trust me in this show? I don't. Do you, no. I, I, yeah, no. I don't. Because that's, I mean, when I'm, I know. Oh, I do. You do? I do. Trust I, me. Oh. I, well, I don't say trust me. I, I say, I tell Weir that, like, it's no way to live. Oh, I well, I'm trying to, I tell him that he's got to, like, at this point, because he's got to trust me because I'm in it with him. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a vital element in any relationship, whether it's personal or professional. For me, because I, <laughs> I'm a, I'd become cynical if I wasn't before, but if somebody says, trust me, the hairs go up on the back of my neck for a while. Another great question was, was there any part of their characters that they had trouble adapting to? The amount of, <laughs> the amount of lines, the amount of talking that Ben, you know, there are two or three occasions when he basically delivers a lecture. And, you know, I mean, learning lines is part of our job, and I'm reasonably good at it, but I'd rather not have to do it. <laughs> I'd rather do something with a look than a line. But, and I had hell of a lot of lines in this. Well, it wasn't that I had trouble connecting, but I'm playing a very talkative person, and like her energy is super high up here, and so it wasn't that I didn't connect to it. It just it, it it's like a different energy, and you know, kind of like a little chat. Like not I I, would, I wouldn't say difficult to connect to. I would say each character you play, you've got to kind of. It, there, it's great when there's a challenge, and there it was a little bit of a challenge because she talks a lot. Last up was a trio of very important characters, starting with Enid Graham, who plays Joe Maddy on the show, Robert Yang, who plays Edward Hom, and Walter Klink, who plays the intern, which might be a little different than you think. So I had to ask them, and once you see the first episode of the show, you'll understand this question a little bit better, but I had to ask them if they knew where their character would be going after that first episode. So things happen really fast and furious in this first episode. It, not not so much with 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 Maddie because you kind of know where she stands, but with 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 you, Walt, and with you and with you, Rob. Do you kind of know where your character's going after that first episode? Well, I just knew I was still in it, so there was more. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. The, yeah. <laughs> no, I totally uh, understand what you mean. Like that, like this surely can't be why I'm here just to. <laughs> be gagged. Yeah, same. I don't know. I could be wrong. <laughs> Who knows? You gotta, you gotta watch it. One of the big connections in this show is with Kiefer Sutherland's weird character and Enid Graham's Joe Maddie character. So somebody asked how much she could talk about the backstory between the two of them. For me, you know, they're, they're kind of kindred spirits in a way. You know, he, he's obsessive. I think I describe him as super smart and half crazy. And I kind of think Joe's a little bit like that too. You know, she, she gets her mind set on something and she's gonna pursue it no matter what, even if sometimes it means breaking a few rules or even if everybody around her is telling her no. So I think she kind of relates to, to John Weir. Definitely he becomes like a you know, white whale of hers that she has to, she's gonna bring him down. She's gonna expose the truth no matter what. The no matter what it is kind of interesting. The next journalist actually asked what it was about their characters or the script itself that made them want to take these roles. I thought these were some very interesting insights into their characters, too. Well, I love the script. I haven't had a chance to work on a thriller-type show before, and so that immediately caught my eye. And then, you know, you just can't put it down. You just, it, it's really exciting to read, and, you know, so that's great to come across something that, that's obviously well-written and good. And then finally, I mean, I just love my character. You know, I loved her straight talking. I loved her unapologetic ambition <laughs> and, you know, her confidence. So it was great to play a woman like that. And I love that John and Glenn wrote a woman like that. So I was on board right away. For me, it's, it's like great script and great filmmakers doing like this TV show that's like a movie. You know, it's like mm -hmm. all these twists and turns. Like I, I love those sort of shows where it's just things are intentional, you know, and you, 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 you're like, oh, that's what that was. I like smart writing that's got some heart to it. 
in like real full characters, and it's easy to to you know know what you want to work on. I think. I just like characters. You know, I can watch something if it's about a character. So I was just happy reading something that was new and interesting and different. And a television show created on characters is is awesome. You know. And let me tell you, it's so hard for anybody to talk about this show without spoiling anything because it's that kind of show. There's so many secrets and there's so many twists and turns to this thing. You're definitely going to want to put this on your list, Rabbit Hole premieres. It's first couple of episodes, actually, on March the 26th on Paramount Plus and then weekly after that. And let me tell you, just keep your eyes open for everything because this one will keep you guessing until the end. Thanks to the creative team and the wonderful cast of Rabbit Hole from Paramount Plus for joining me to talk about the show. Up next, I'll talk about another show that's going to take you down the conspiracy route. The Night Agent, which is now streaming from Netflix. I'll talk to the showrunner and one of the members of the cast of that show next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Ryan. And I'm Eric Kripke. And we're the creators of Timeless on NBC, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Placing a call to the Night Action Line. The Night Agent is now streaming on Netflix. Show came out yesterday, and it's just this good p- political conspiracy action type shit. There's there's a lot of ways to describe it. So one of the great guys I want to ask about that is the creator of the show, executive producer and showrunner Sean Ryan. And then a little bit later on after that, I'll talk to Andre Anthony, who plays Mateo on the series as well. But got to start things off with Sean Ryan. All right, so let's just dive right into it, man. There's a lot of shows that have been in this kind of genre where you've got the government conspiracy type thriller. So what do you think sets the night agent apart and makes it a little bit unique from others in the space? I think it's the character work we do. I spent a lot of time thinking about, I would say that that there hasn't always been a great deal of success in this genre and TV, whereas in the movie space, they're able to tell these sort of two-hour stories that rely on the plot twists and everything to do and so i started thinking a lot about well if i'm going to do a 10 episode series in the space first of all we're fortunate that we have a lot of great source material from the book that matthew quirk wrote so that was a big advantage but i started thinking about you know some of my favorite movies like a movie like three days of the condor is a really great film if i were to sort of criticize one aspect of it they they jumped into this Robert Redford, Redford, uh, Faye Dunaway romance <laughs> quickly in a movie concerning he had kind of kidnapped her from a store and 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 held her tied up in 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 her apartment and then and then all of a sudden they're like having sex, you know where movies have a disadvantage is in advancing relationships at a natural pace I think, and so one of the things I wanted to do yes we're going to lean into all the things that make political conspiracy thrillers so exciting for people. We're going to have those plot twists. We're going to have the twists and turns. But along the way, I really wanted to dive deep into character work and not just with our two leads, Peter and Rose, the the two assassins who are after them, the people that work in the White House. In episode three, the show opens up and you meet the vice president's daughter and the Secret Service people that are protecting her. And you really learn a lot about these people. They're more than just plot devices. So I would say the thing that we tried to do, and the audience will be the judge that separates us from all these things, is it's not just plot. It's not just, here's our twist, here's our twist, here's our twist, with people that you don't really care about. We try to get you to care about so everyone involved in the show. And that's that's what we tried to do and how we tried to differentiate ourselves. It's like you just made an outline of all the things I wanted to talk to you about. So I'm super excited about that so here we go there's just something about gabriel yep. and and lucian when i see them on the screen together that just works so well so how quickly did you notice that chemistry between the two of them it's luciani first of all and this was a very unusual casting process in that you know we did it obviously during covid when for the most part you weren't able to bring actors in in person the good news for that is it really allowed for kind of a worldwide search we knew we wanted people that were young at the, and at the beginning of their professional careers to play Peter and Rose. There, there was some talk among some of my partners about trying to go for a bigger name and someone older for Peter. And I, my response was, this is, this is a guy who's, who's working a real kind of not great job mm-hmm. in, in yeah. the windowless room in the basement of the White House. And that's one thing if you're in your mid-20s. 
and you're trying to climb the ladder. So another thing, if you're 38 and you're still kind of working in that room, it, it's a whole different thing. So so we were looking for people that, that we knew had to be discoveries a little bit. And we knew how important that Peter Rose relationship was going to be. And yet we couldn't bring these people physically together to kind of read them for chemistry reads. So, so we found Luciani first before we found Gabriel. She was one of three or four finalists, but in my mind, she was the finalist. She was the one that I thought is really right. But I had to kind of reserve in myself the idea that, well, I got to see who Peter is because maybe whoever Peter is, isn't going to be such a great match with her. For the first time in my career, we did these chemistry reads via Zoom. (laughs) And they're not ideal because you don't get the people in the same room together kind of vibing off each other. But you do get to see them in screens next to each other and they're looking at each other on the screens and you got to have a little sense of it. And so I felt considering the circumstances that it it went about as well as it could go, but then you're really taking a leap of faith. And it wasn't until we got up to Vancouver where we were filming and I finally got into a room with the two of them. And we started to do some rehearsals with Seth Gordon, our director. And we started to see the vibe between them. You know, one of the funny things is you cast people on Zoom and you don't really have a big sense of their physicality. So we got them in a room and realized, like in real life, I'm about a foot taller than my wife. And we got it. He's about a foot taller than Luciani. And you don't see that a lot of times in sort of TVs and movies. But I thought, oh, this feels very real to me because this is like my marriage <laughs> in many ways. And the physicality. And so the scenes where she's pushing up against him and arguing her case with him, you know, there's almost like a great like uh, Sally Field. Uh, Sally Field in her heyday was always this little spitfire of an actress. And that's what I sort of got. And so when I saw them rehearsing and working together, I was like, wow, these two really kind of fit together. And it's just one of those magic moments that you you rely on luck. And, and we got lucky that both of them were such great actors, but also so great together. I love that comparison, too. That's amazing. The Sally Field comparison. That's that's very cool. This is definitely one of those shows, Sean, that, that fans are going to be trying to decide who they can trust as they're watching, especially if, so those who haven't read the book. So as you're putting this show together, were there certain characters that you always knew you kind of wanted to put that question mark on? Or did you kind of let, let it happen a little bit more organically as you were going through it? Well, first of all, I have to give a lot of credits to uh, the other writers on the show. Yeah, I did write this pilot by myself, but then we hired a, a writing staff that was really great. And, and we spent a lot of time talking about what we knew as writers of what we want to do, but what the audience would know at any given time, what we want them to know. We also felt it was important that you could go back and watch this show twice and knowing everything that happens in the first season, watch it again and and not feel you were manipulated or cheated or or deceived in some way. We wanted everything to 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 make sense in in retrospect. So that was important. But I think people will know from the get-go that that because so much of the show is told from the perspective of Peter and Rose that we can trust them. Everyone else is sort of up for grabs. <laughs> Yeah, pretty in much. many ways. Yep. <laughs> Who's going to be an ally? Who's going to be antagonist? Will that shift along the way? And so we spent a lot of time talking about characters like Jamie Hawkins, who Robert Patrick plays, and Diane Farr, who, who our wonderful Oscar-nominated Hong Chao plays, and the characters that Maddie, the vice president's daughter, interacts with. What do we think of them? What are we supposed to think of them? Et cetera. But we did a thing where we wrote all the scripts, and then we went back and started on episode one and said, now that we know exactly where we land, is everything the way we want it? in all these scripts. And then we just went forward and made sure that we were paying off everything we had promised, made sure that everything, if it was subjected to strict scrutiny, would make sense in terms of, you know, bad guy turns and all that. And 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 so that was one of the advantages, I would say, of making a show for Netflix, as opposed to, you know, I've done a lot of broadcast shows too. Broadcast shows, you're, you're filming as you're airing. In this case, we were able to to really craft the whole season, go back, really be careful about this. Because I think there's a promise when you make a show like this to your audience that, A, the questions are going to be really interesting and the answers are going to be really satisfying. And if not, people are going to be disappointed and let down by the show. 
So, like you said, Sean, after the first couple of episodes, we we get introduced to the vice president's daughter, Maddie, who's played by brilliantly by Sarah Desjardins. So, no spoilers here, of course, and I know this is going to be hard, but how big of a role is Maddie going to play in the overall story? Very big. There's a there's a reason why that story gets introduced in that first episode. Without spoilers, I will just say that something happens at the end of the episode that makes you believe that that she is somehow going to be connected to what Peter and Rose are dealing with in the first couple episodes, and and she becomes a, a big fulcrum point. And we we're, we're very lucky to find her. I saw her last night at our premiere party, and she's also in the show Yellow Jackets. With, you know, in their second season, Ski Ray Press. Like it's a big week for you. <laughs> a lot of people. Gonna, and we and we were talking about her character in this versus her character in that. But she's a tremendous actress, and I was just fascinated with the idea because I had been thinking of a Secret Service story to do. And I was like, well, everyone always does protecting the president. And I was wondering, like, what's the least glamorous job you might not want to have in the Secret Service? And I thought, well, you know, and I had a daughter at college uh, at the time that I was writing this. And uh, and I was sort of fascinated by the idea of president and vice president's kids who are at college and and what their college lives are like and how they're protected by the Secret Service. I was able to talk sort of off the record to a retired Secret Service agent who had uh, been on the protection detail for Chelsea Clinton at Stanford oh, wow. and got a sense of what that was like. And so, yeah, she, you know, we, didn't, we don't just throw her in there in episode three for the heck of it. It's, she's really crucial to the story. No doubt about that. On the flip side of that, though, you've also got Chelsea Arrington, who I loved immediately, by the way. Part of that's because I'm a big fan of FOLA anyway. But I, the character I loved immediately. So did you, how did you kind of find that balance, you and the writers, between the character being like the cool agent for the college girl, but also someone who's clearly wise beyond their years? Yeah, first of all, I'll say this. Fola was one of our actresses who originally auditioned for Rose. And I didn't feel like she was right for Rose, but I could tell what a tremendous actress she was. And, and we talked her into auditioning for Chelsea when she didn't get the Rose role and, and ended up with her. She brings a real confidence and intelligence, but there's there also is that youth thing. Uh, that was one of the things I talked about with, with the former Secret Service agent who worked Chelsea Clinton's thing, was it was all about fitting in on campus. You know, they're not in the suits. They're not in, you know, they're trying to be inconspicuous. They're trying to let someone like Chelsea have as normal as possible a college experience. And so the idea that that there was a rationale here for someone on the younger side of the Secret Service to be in charge of a detail, but the main reason being that she really fits it on campus and the protectee, in this case, Maddie, really trusts her and has what can't be described as anything else other than a friendship. It's not strictly a protector-protectee relationship. She's almost a confidant. She's she's almost a shrink to her in some ways. And 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 I think she views her job to be to protect Maddie, not only physically, but but in terms of her well-being and mental health. And and so Fola really brought a kind of fierce strength to that. You sense that she's someone trying really hard to prove herself, that she knows that that someone like her, young and of color, that this opportunity is, is something where she's going to be scrutinized heavily and she feels a responsibility to live up to that. And, and it was in our case, it was a perfect match of, of actress to role. And there's so many amazing matches just like that in this show, which you'll see on March the 23rd. That's when The Night Agent premieres on Netflix. And this guy, a big, big reason I think that this show is going to be amazing. Creator, showrunner, and EP, Sean Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. We love the show. Hope you guys enjoy it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Speaking of that great character work that Sean Ryan was mentioning, I actually have one of the characters from the show, Andre Anthony, who plays Mateo, who is a bit more of a mysterious character, and he's going to try and give us some insight into that and what it was like on the show without spoiling anything. So here's part of my conversation with him. Andre, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me. This thing's got so many twists and turns and just such an immersive story. What was it like to be a part of a show like this where it kind of keeps you guessing every single second you're watching it? Oh, man. You know, at first I had read the book by Matthew Quirk and... It, it was exactly that, you know, it keeps you so engaged. You're kind of wondering, like, as as the chapters go on, you're wondering, you're thinking of your own theories of who could possibly be doing someone wrong or, or how this will translate to the next thing. And then, you know, I think Sean Ryan, you know, when, when he had all the scripts laid out, there were a few things that he had changed kind of logistically uh, in terms of the book. But you know, after every episode, it really made you want to go like, okay, what what is, is going to happen next? You know, and then it throws you for a loop in the next part. And then, so it just, yeah, it just keeps you engaged. And then all, obviously the action is another thing that, that I think people will be really excited about. And we can't say when we meet Mateo in this show. I can, I could say that's, just, I'm not trying to let any phones of the Netflix in the Netflix basement ring and get us both in trouble. So we're not going to do that. But I'll ask, I'll ask you this. How surprised were you at where his journey was going in the show? Ooh, yeah, I was, it was very surprising. You know, essentially Mateo is, he's a character that has been done wrong. He's, he's looking for revenge and yeah, it's, it's it's a really fun character in that sense where obviously like you said I can't really say too much about it just because of the nature of of who he is but he's very unpredictable and I think he's 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 one of those characters that's put in the show to really make the audience think twice about what they might think is going on but yeah as I was reading the episodes even as I was auditioning for the part and talking to Sean about it it was like, oh my God. And then you read the next thing that that he does and you're like, wow, okay. So we're definitely in for a ride here. But it it was it was a lot of fun to kind of talk about, you know, his motivations with the creatives. And yeah, yeah, I'm really excited to see how people respond to it. This is a conspiracy like so many others. And there's, so, like I said, so many twists and turns with a lot of the things that happen in the show. I actually feel like there's a couple of twists with your character too, actually. It was in reading the book, did that kind of help prepare you for where that was going and when those twists were going to be happening? Or were you still kind of a little bit surprised as you were going through the scripts and going, oh, so this is what we're doing? Yeah, I think that there was a lot of stuff with Mateo's character because he's not as prominent maybe in the book. It's a little bit ambiguous as to kind of who's involved with with what in in terms of his side of the story. So it was really cool. Also, I think, you know, acting wise, too, it was nice to kind of have a fresh start with the scripts of the show as opposed to like, OK, this is what he does in the book. Maybe I'll do it exactly like that. So it was kind of just taking some elements from the book and going, OK, this is the direction that we're headed. And then it also gave me a little bit more freedom because it's maybe not as detailed in the book. No doubt. And you talk about the action that's in the series, which is which is, there's a lot of great stuff in there you actually get to be a part of a little bit of that how much of that were you actually able to do your were you actually able to do some of your own stunts and everything like that and how was it kind of getting in there and being able to do something like that which you haven't done a whole lot of up to this point in your career absolutely yeah it's a great point the stunt team on this show was was incredible you know and as soon as i met them we talked about okay these are some things that we can do you know um, I was super eager to try to do as much as I possibly could when it came to the stage combat and the firearms and that kind of stuff. So we we definitely worked pretty hard to to try to choreograph those kinds of things. And then Gabe, who plays Peter, he's very well trained in martial arts and combat and stuff. So so he did a lot of that. So I was looking to him and the rest of the stunt team to try to do as much as I possibly could, for sure. Oh, no doubt. And you can see that when you watch the show, too. You guys all understand when you when you actually get a chance to watch it, you'll totally get it. So was there a specific episode that you can remember 
that really shocked you and you and you went to yourself, okay, now I'm hooked. Obviously, there's, you know, episode one, I think hooks me, but there's also an episode, I think it's maybe I want to say three for me, where I went at three where I went, okay, now you really got me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, even reading the pilot, I think that that they do an amazing job of, you know, introducing the relationships, what's really going on. There's a killer action sequence in there. And then yeah, I, I would say that's a good one. Three is also is kind of the point where I think that it opens up different possibilities where you're going, okay, maybe this is this is a lot more than just kind of like an action show. I think that's really the point where audiences will start to come up with their own theories, which is an exciting thought. It's interesting to me too, because I don't know how you felt being a part of it, but as I'm watching it, I know there's 10 episodes in my head, right? But at the same time, it feels like every episode, I feel like this could end at any second. Like at, at any second, this could just be over. Did you kind of feel that urgency too when you were, when you were doing this? Definitely. And I think that's also the beauty of the show is, is they kind of introduce this theory that nobody's really safe. And as the show goes on, you start to, like even if you think that this is exactly who I think is involved or, and then you'll get a moment in one of the episodes where it completely debunks your theory and you're, you're, you're forced to like reevaluate everything. And I think that's what keeps everything exciting is even if you know that this guy is the main character or these, this is the main cast, you never quite know if they're actually safe. And I think you see that in some some of the biggest shows like Game of Thrones or those kinds of things where it's like, oh, my God, you know, you see your favorite character and they might not make it, you know. So I think that's a great way to keep everybody engaged. This might be a hard question for you to answer. And if you can't, I totally get it because, I've, you know, we're trying to avoid spoiler territory here. And I think we're doing a good job. But was there a particular character or particular actor that you really enjoyed having scenes within the show. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about this. I know there's a, I, I know there's some names you can't say. I will I will say that. I I, I know because I've seen it. So I know there's some names you can't say. Totally. I do have a particular name, but maybe if we revisit this after the show comes out, I will say. But I would say just just Gabe. Gabe was just a great guy to to work with because he was just so committed to to the show and like I said, to the combat and all that stuff. Yeah, you know, we definitely have a couple fight scenes in there. And it's it was just something that I hadn't experienced much, as you kind of touched on earlier. But it was great to kind of have that guidance from the stunt team and him and really dive into that stuff. And I think it makes everything a bit more enjoyable when, when you kind of see that kind of action firsthand. So yeah. see, if you weren't intrigued enough, now you need to watch the show to see who he's talking about, because you're probably going to know who it is once you start watching. As a matter of fact, I know you're going to know who it is once you start watching it and get into it. Andre Anthony, thanks so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you having me. And if you think as you were listening to that, oh, I hope Andre didn't give away anything. Uh, trust me, he didn't. There's so many secrets and layers to the show. It's going to be one of those where you're going to be trying to, you know, look at every little detail and, you know, look, even look over your own shoulder and like, you know, who can I trust? Who, what's safe? Where is safe? And all this other stuff. And then try and figure out who's behind everything. It's, it's so, there's so much going on in the Night Age. And that's one of the reasons I loved watching it. Hopefully you're doing the same now streaming on Netflix. Don't let this one pass you by. Add it to your list. Tell everybody about it because I want more of the show myself. So selfishly, I want to make sure you're watching this show for me because I want more. Thanks to Sean Ryan and Andre Anthony for joining me to talk about The Night Agent from Netflix. Up next, we'll open the door. Yes, the big door prize, Apple TV Plus, that brand new series. It's going to be premiering in just a few days. I'll talk to the cast and creatives behind that one next. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jessica Lucas from Gotham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. What if I told you one machine could change your life? You've got the Big Door Prize premiering on March the 29th on Apple TV+. Plus. It's a wonderful show about a small town that has the Morpho machine that just sort of shows up and changes things for that town forever. And I got a chance to talk to the actors in the series, also showrunner as well. So I want to start out with the main actors from the show, Chris O'Dowd and Gabrielle Dennis, giving us really big insight into their character and what's going to be coming up for this season. Great title, podcast. Yeah, hey, James. We were, we were making you, up a theme song for you before you came on. Going to get I, down I and nerdy. <laughs> I heard that. I'm thinking about switching my intro right now because of that. So we'll, we'll talk. Well, I'll, my people will talk to your people. 
Really enjoying the big the big door prize, and it, one of the reasons is because of you guys. I mean, the chemistry between the two of you is just off this the charts one. good. This I think one. in this show, yeah, yeah. I just give a little nudge. So, <laughs> how would you kind of describe? How would you both describe the relationship? I think in many ways it's kind of like a, a very typical marriage where there are little problems within it that nobody's talking about. They get on for the most part. They're quite kind to each other. They're coming to the end of their parenting cycle which can often feel like being on the inside of an industrial drying machine. And I feel like they are, then when this, this machine turns up and upends their community, they are very much at the eye of that particular hurricane. Especially being high school sweethearts, you know, it's kind of like neither have really explored outside of the world of Cass and Dusty as a union. I think when the this morpho machine swoops down, and spreads its wings, it's just kicking up a lot of dust that nobody asked for. So, yeah. and they find themselves right in the middle of this, you know, this this tornado of new information and newfound curiosity and discovery and questions that they may or may not have known existed within themselves. The Morpho Machine is definitely interesting because I feel like it's the catalyst, but do you kind of feel like because maybe it's a small town and everything, are, are the people themselves more the real influence over the two of them than the actual Morpho machine, you think? Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, the way that the town is drawn, it feels like one of those, like, globe shows where you could put, like, one big glass orb and the whole world of the show would be within it. We don't talk that much about what's happening in pop culture or any of those kind of things. It is its own place. It feels like it is a microcosm of American society in loads of ways, but it does mean that it's more self-determining, which is exciting, I think, in a show like this which for me is interesting because of the oracle nature and how people are easily led, that the community feels very self-contained, I think is important to that idea. It's kind of one of those things, it's the chicken or the egg first, right? It's like if the machine didn't, if when the machine's there, it piques your interest, you want to try it. Then once you're sharing that information and, you know, Mr. Johnson's putting people's photos up on the wall and now it becomes a society of people wanting to not be left out and wanting to be a part of something, which is very indicative of how human nature rolls, especially in America, where it's like every one of us has some sense of a follower within us. Right. And so we all want to be a part of the bigger picture. And it's also this big mysterious entity that takes a hold of this entire town. And it's very interesting to see how each person deals with it differently. And we all get to experience it together when the Big Door Prize premieres on Apple TV Plus on March the 29th. Chris, Gabrielle, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Up next, I also got a chance to talk to showrunner and writer David Westreed. If you want the real skinny on a show, it's not just from the stars, it's from the showrunner as well, because almost nobody has more insight into all the episodes than they do. So let's hear what David had to say. Hey, nice How to meet are you today, you, David? I'm good. How are you doing? Nice to meet you as well. So this show, which is wonderful, is based on the novel from Emma Walsh of the same name. So when you're basing something on a novel like that, were you familiar with it, with it beforehand? And how true did you actually want to stay to the story of the original novel? I mean, I think someone brought me this book, knowing it would be up my alley. I love things that blend comedy and pathos that have a light sci-fi element, that, uh, and, uh, that, which allows you to just kind of talk about the human condition from a unique perspective. But you know what I kept reminding myself during the adaptation process was the book exists. People can go read the book if they want to read the book. I'm not changing the book. It's, it will always be there. And the series has to be something completely different. So we're taking the premise and the spirit of the book and then spun it off in all sorts of new directions. And you know the book obviously has an ending and an explanation explanation and our series does not so far so that's been really fun to open it up and see where we can go with it consider that your heads up when you start watching the show basically yeah. <laughs> the ending yeah. might be a little bit different might, or open-ended if you're really attached to the ending of the book you might be disappointed but you said the book still exists which is always good yes so, <laughs> so david I, I love dusty Cass and trina as a unit what's your favorite thing about this family I love how open and honest this family is that, that they, the three of them talk to each other like adults. The 17 year old daughter is not afraid to tell her parents exactly what she thinks, which I think, you know, there's something about being an only child where you just become a bit of a, a bit more of a grown up sooner. And so I love them as a trio where they're really all on the same level. Absolutely. Me too. So like you said, light sci-fi element here, but you, this is such a character driven show. I feel like, and a lot of characters are driving this thing. So how do you balance that, those character-driven moments to, I mean, you've still got the thing over here, the mystery of the Morpho. How do you balance those two stories? 
Well, for me, the Morpho machine and the mystery of this magical device is an exciting way to bring audiences in. But ultimately, I wanted the show to be more about what people do as a result of the machine, which feels more universal and relatable as, uh, is how as humans do we react to the idea of being told what will make us happy. So the, the mystery recedes into the background a little bit as we focus more on the changing relationships uh, and dynamics between these characters. Most definitely. Now, this is set in a small town. Do you feel like this has more of an impact being set in a small town than it would be in a city like New York or something a little bit bigger? For sure. I mean, my experience with small towns is that anytime something new arrives, whether it's like a donut shop or a, a new store, everyone flocks to it. Everyone's talking about it, at least for a very short period of time. And then there's kind of a turn and, and something similar happens in this series where everyone flocks to the machine and then people eventually start to question whether it's, it's as great as everyone assumes it is. Well, there was a town called Deerfield, a couple of towns away from where I was. So this <laughs> is definitely in there for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've set the show, unlike the book, this is like a geographically ambiguous place meant to be any town USA. So, you know, I love the idea of, of making a show in a bubble where everything that happens happens in Deerfield and we never talk about the outside world. It, it, it's a fun way to kind of make everything feel that much more significant. And fun definitely describes this show. Make sure you're watching the Big Door Prize on March the 29th. That's when the first few episodes are going to premiere on Apple TV+. Plus. And then weekly after that, David Westreed, thank you so much, man, for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. And this show really has a lot of fun moments, but also it has those crossroad moments in someone's life where they try and decide, you know, is, is this the path that I wish I'd taken? Am I happy? Sort of things. These just questions that sometimes you might ask yourself and, you know, whether you're being nostalgic, or you're just being in the moment or whatever, or if it's more of like a midlife crisis type of situation where there's real questions here that kind of got a, a catalyst for that was this sci-fi element that is this Morpho machine. And this show really, really does a great job of balancing those two elements, like I said, but also having such amazing characters that I think you're really going to enjoy right away. So make sure you're watching The Big Door Prize on March the 29th on Apple TV+. And like they said, the, the ending of Season 1 is open-ended, so if you want to complete the story, you got to make sure you watch the hell out of this show and tell a lot of people about it so we can get a Season 2 because I certainly don't want this thing to be left open-ended based on what I've seen already. Again, thanks to Chris O'Dowd, Gabrielle Dennis, and David Westreed for joining me to talk about the Big Door Prize. Up next, I'm going to give you my spoiler-filled review of Shazam! Fury of the Gods, and there's a lot to talk about next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Brett Bassinger from DC Stargirl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Certainly plenty of fury surrounding this movie. Shazam! Fury of the Gods is now in theaters, has been. So I'm going to go ahead and give a spoiler-filled review of this movie. So just be ready for spoilers coming up. And just to throw this out there in the beginning, I liked it. I was entertained. There was a couple times where I actually laughed out loud, which was good. And, you know, were the, was this movie full of a lot of originality? Not really, but, the, I mean, it didn't really have to be. That was my thing, is that, you know, especially, like, you take a look at the villains, for example. You've got the Daughters of Atlas. Of course, they're upset. You know, their dad's powers were basically given to kids and idiots. And you could certainly understand that. So you've got Hesper, you've got Calypso, and you've got, spoiler alert, Rachel Zegler's character of Anthea is the third daughter, even though you see her meet Freddie in the school, and, you know, they have that instant connection sort of thing. You think, you know, man, oh, maybe Freddie is finally going to get some attention from the ladies, and then, you know, things sort of go off the rails from there, and we find out that is the case later on in the movie because of that connection that they made. But anyway, you've got these villains, and you know that they're upset for the reason I just mentioned, and, you know, then they have different ideas of what they should do once they get the powers back and they end up fighting with each other. And then you see that Calypso ends up being the true villain of the story in the first place. And, you know, she's got a dragon and all this stuff. Okay. Is, is all of that hugely original? No, we've seen that from villains before. This is a villain story we've certainly seen before. However, I think that at the core of this movie, really, and I think this is what Zachary Levi has been trying to talk about for basically anybody to listen on social media. He says this is the perfect family movie. I kind of agree and disagree with that. I understand what he's saying, though, because this movie is really mostly about Shazam and Billy 
and his fear of abandonment. And you can understand why that is given what's happened in Billy's life up to this point. But it's basically about him trying to keep his family together when he thinks everybody is going to be drifting apart and he's about to age out of the foster system. So he thinks that his family, the Vasquez family is just kind of kind of going to kind of ditch him and everybody, you know, everybody, all of his brothers and sisters, foster brothers and sisters are trying to do their own thing. He's having a hard time keeping the group together. He's having a hard time being a leader in the first place. He's still finding his way in that respect. So that's really at the core what this movie is really about. And for all of these kids to, you know, sort of find themselves and find their way. Sort of think that at the core is what this movie's about. And then, you know, there's some entertaining entertainment value throughout here and there. And that to me is why you should enjoy or not enjoy this movie. If that's not your thing, cool. Because this is still a superhero movie, but at the same time, these are very different superheroes. These the You have to remember, and I think that this kind of gets lost because you have adult characters playing the hero parts, right? These are kids. Imagine if a kid, even a high school-age kid, was just suddenly given these, these incredible powers and what they would do with them and how they would manage you know, trying to save a city, especially the, the scene where the, where the bridge is collapsing, for example, right? You know, they, they kind of do what they need to do. Obviously, they save as many people as they can. You'd, I'd like to think they save most of the people. But then you see when they try and put the bridge back together, they suck at it, right? They're doing a terrible job. There's, you know, they half-ass it at certain points or, you know, the, there's just, you know, the attention span's not really there. That's kids. Not all kids, Right. But that's kids in, in a nutshell. There's certain things they're not going to think of. There's certain things you're not going to pay attention to. Now, there might be a couple that do, but when you've got something like that going on and you're a new hero, you kind of need everybody on the same page, and they're not. Because the other thing is they seem like they, they're having a hard time figuring how to, out how to work as a group. And when your leader is also a kid, it's really hard to you know, be able to put that together as well. So, again, it, this is not your traditional superhero movie like you would think it is with a hero that even in the beginning stages of them trying to figure out their their place as a hero usually these origin stories start when they're adults and you could say oh well Peter Parker okay we're not going to sit here and compare Shazam and and Spider-Man just I'm I'm just not going to do that I know that that's what somebody that's listening to this right now is thinking oh well Peter Parker was a high school student yeah but we're also talking about some younger kids here too that have these powers. You got a couple of high school students, of course. You know, Mary's on her on her way to college potentially, and obviously there there's some things there. But you know, for the most part, we're talking about kids here, and and maybe that's a tough sell to you too. You just don't want a superhero movie about about kids, and that's that's fair enough, fair enough. But just to me, that there was a wholesomeness about this movie. I mean, there were some dark parts, too. Don't get me wrong. That's why I don't think this is like the perfect family movie. You know, when you've got somebody walking off of a building in front of, you know, some kids, that's that's a little hardcore. So I don't know if I would say perfect family movie, but there are a lot of good family elements in this thing. And you could argue, does Billy find his way at the end of this movie? Yeah, I think he does. And, you know, are there some, you know, reassurances there from his family and from the wizard, by, which, by the way, Jaiman Hansu deserves a, a lot of credit because he was funny, a lot more funny in this than he was in the first one because he was given the opportunity to be funny. And the scenes with he and Freddie, Jack Dylan Glazer, I really enjoyed those scenes. Those were some of my favorite scenes of the whole movie was the two of them together. Actually, Jack Dylan Glazer, I think, deserves a ton of credit for how good he was in this movie. He played a lot bigger role in this movie than he did in the first one, I think, anyway. And I, I really think he had a chance to shine. And Zachary Levi, I'm, I'm just a Zachary Levi fan, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I thought he was really, really good here. I thought that he was really given the opportunity, again, to sort of reinvent the character a second time and kind of age him up a little bit, but still have that kid-like aspect to him at, as well. So he, he really plays that balance really, really well because I just think that's... I don't know the guy, but I feel like that's just kind of his personality a little bit. And this was just a perfect match. But I also love Darla. Whether it's adult Darla or, or kid Darla, there's just something about Darla that's just, I, again, just so wholesome. And so, like, like, if that was your daughter, you'd love her to pieces. 
sort of thing, right? So I just Darla's one of my favorites on this cast too. But I think that this movie's being unfairly judged for a lot of different reasons. And there's a lot of drama surrounding it. You know, with, is what's being said about The Rock true about, you know, him blocking a cameo and a, and a post-credit in, in Black Adam for Zachary Levi. And, you know, the post-credit scenes for, for Shazam, you know, the whole JSA revelation. And you had to use you had to use characters from Peacemaker to make that happen and, and reference Amanda Waller. OK, it just seems like things didn't go as they should have, no matter whose fault it is. And I, I don't want to point fingers because I want to wait until we kind of have all the information. I have, an, I have an opinion of who I think it is, but I really, I kind of feel like I need to save this. Something tells me I need to, you know, hold my tongue a little bit here and see when everything comes out. You know, now David F. Sandberg seems to see he's a little soured on superhero movies, and that's okay. I don't know that we need another Shazam movie right now or, you know, for a while or maybe ever. I don't know. I just think that the first one was good. This one was good as well. And I think that this one's getting judged a little bit too harshly. And I think partially because, you know, the general movie going public, who I always say is so important in situations like this, kind of seen this already in the first Shazam movie. They saw a lot of what they saw in this movie in the first one. And they just didn't need more, maybe. Or they, or they weren't super excited about more. Or maybe they just didn't get the opportunity to understand what this movie was really about because of the trailers that came out. What, however you want to, however you want to put it, Shazam: Fury of the Gods. I really, really enjoyed it. If you didn't get a chance to see it, you still get a chance to see it in theaters. Or, I mean, when it does come out on digital HD, HBO Max, stream the hell out of it because I think that it'll be worth your time. That's gonna do it for my spoiler-filled review of Shazam: Fury of the Gods. Up next, there's a few, a few nerd news nuggets I'd like to get to. We'll do that next. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Just because I'm avoiding the Shazam drama doesn't mean I'm not talking about DC. It's time for nerd news, and I want to start out with the first look at Jay Lycurgo as Robin, finally, in the upcoming final season of Titans, or at least the final episodes of the final season, which are going to come back on April the 13th. So by May, Titans will be done on HBO Max, which is kind of sad. But I, I look at this look by Jay Lycurgo, this Robin look, and it's exactly what you want it to be for Tim Drake, especially the cape. That was The cape was the only thing to me that they had to get right because the Robin costume, there's been, you know, plenty of variations on it over the years since, you know, the Dick Grayson classic one that we had. You know, it sort of evolved as time goes on, and I think that that's really good. But the cape for Tim Drake's, that's the signature piece to me for Tim Drake's Robin is the cape, and I feel like they got it right. That was one thing that they, to me, absolutely had to get right, and they did. If you want to follow at Dan and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, I think I put it up on Instagram as well, at Dan and Nerdy 757. But you look at the look, and, and it's exactly everything that I wanted to be, and it is a powerful look for him, and that's kind of what you need. Now, remember when we first got introduced to Tim Drake, he was a really smart kid, as, as he is in the comics, but very, very unsure of himself, and, you know, very much green in, in, in training-wise and everything like that. But, you know, then when you link up with the Titans and, and Dick Grayson and company, they've certainly been training him up, and it looks like he's ready to finally become a hero. And I'm so glad we're getting to this point before the series ends because this is one of those loose ends I felt like might not get tied up. And I'm glad that we're actually going to get there now. Are we going to ultimately get the Tim Drake that we deserve? Probably not. I don't think there's enough time to do that. But what would be interesting is if the series kind of ends with Dick Grayson passing the torch to Tim Drake to, to lead the Titans. Now, that would be interesting. Now, why would that happen? That's, you know, that's a matter for the story to tell. You know, it just seems like Dick Dick's tired, man. He is He is tired, and he's been through... A lot, and maybe he just wants to step away and do his own thing, or maybe he just wants to step away and take a break, and he feels like Tim can handle it in his absence. So that that wouldn't be surprised if we end up getting that at some point. Now, is he ready to lead? That's you know that's a matter of opinion, but I think that this is a really really good step in the right in the right direction for this final season, and I you know I'm not sure that they can tie that up completely by the end, but I'm really excited 
that we got this step. And I think that the costume looks really, really good. And that's the thing about Titans is that pretty much every suit reveal they've done has been a winner. I can't remember a single time where I saw a reveal from Titans from any of the seasons where I looked at it and went, ugh, that, that's not good. Or, oh, well, they really messed that up. No, pretty much all of them, all of them that I could think of, have been winners. So, bravo to the team behind Titans for, you know, basically doing as much right as they, as they were possibly able to do is the best way I can really put it. So, bravo, Titans. Can't wait for that to return on April the 14th, uh, April the 13th. And yeah, don't worry. I'll have a review of that when it comes back. Absolutely. A couple of trailers to talk about really quickly. Sweet Tooth's coming back for its second season on April the 27th on Netflix. This was one of my favorite shows when it came out a couple of years ago. And this is going to be a tough beginning of the season, I feel like, because we've got Gus and fellow hybrids. They're being held captive by the last man. And, you know, the last man in the dock are trying to find a cure for the sick, and they think the hybrids are the key to that. And you see that in the, in the trailer, and it's a very ominous tone to me in the beginning because, you know, experimentation, especially when you're talking about kids and things like that, and, oh, it's just as a dad, it hits me on a different level. So it's, it's hard to watch the beginning part of this trailer. And, you know, are they desperate? Are they misguided? You talk about the, the, the last men, uh, maybe a little bit of both. But then you see sort of the shift and you get the big man coming back in here. He's going to try and help save the kids from the last men. But then you also have Gus at one point in this trailer saying that, you know, he's tired of running and you see him start to fight back. And will that inspire his fellow hybrids to fight back? And will we finally see the Gus that we sort of, you know, got to start to see in the comics as well, where he sort of steps up and grows up a bit more and starts to fight back? A little bit. I, I think that that's kind of what we're going to see. And we've seen that Christian Convery has really grown as an actor, too. We've seen him in a bunch of different stuff since we first saw him debut in the first season of Sweet Tooth. So, I mean, just seeing him back in this role is going to be incredible. They've got the entire cast back. And I, this this show was so wholesome in parts, heartbreaking in parts. And you want to talk about a family story, a found family story. This is certainly it. And this second season, I think, is going to be even better than the first, or at least it has a chance to be anyway. So you've still got plenty of time to catch up on season one because season two of Sweet Tooth, like I said, going to be coming April the 27th to Netflix. If you want more information, you want to see the trailer, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Same goes for Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story as well, because I've got that trailer up there. On the website, and May 4th is when you're going to be able to see this Bridgerton prequel. And yeah, this does follow Queen Charlotte's rise to prominence, you know, marrying King George, and you know, the love story, and how they sort of shifted everything in the social ranks and in society and, and, and things like that. And you see that, you know, anytime you're talking about a royal story, even if it's a love story, you're going to face scandal, you're going to face, you know, you, you have Charlotte, who's, you know, a very young queen now, and you know, the, the, she kind of runs into the, well, you know, this is just how it works sort of thing. And she's like, to hell, this is how it works. I'm going to see my husband, whether I, you say I can or not sort of thing. But what you also see, and I love that we're getting this from the beginning, at least in the trailer anyway, is that you're seeing George treat Charlotte like a queen, like his wife from the get-go, even right before they're married, right? You see that, you know, she's, you see in the trailer, she's trying to kind of escape the garden. And they sort of have that moment where they first meet and their hands touch. And you see that there's a spark there. And she sees, you know, George isn't some dried up asshole that just, you know, is, is going to marry her because he wants to have a bunch of babies. Now, that's what his mom wants. But it seems like he genuinely wants to love and respect her. And that's probably not something she was expecting in that moment. So you you sort of see how their relationship could build in this in this series. And I think that that's a real key to this and something that Bridgerton has done very well up to this point as well. And I think that India Amartiefo, I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not. But as a young Queen Charlotte, she looks like she has definitely got the attitude and the building, 
you know, vibes of what you need to play Queen Charlotte. So I think she's kind of got that down. And with Shonda Rhimes at the helm as showrunner and writer, I think that they are in very, very good hands indeed. And you see, you know, we've got a young Brimsley in this trailer as well, which I love a lot of the younger characters that are involved. And because this is a prequel, you kind of know how the story is going to, going to evolve, but there's got to be gaps in there that you're not going to know about. But also it seems like older Queen Charlotte is almost telling this story from her perspective. And we're going to kind of go back and forth from current time to previous time. So I think that that's something that we can certainly watch out for. But yeah, if you're a Bridgerton fan, you've got to be super excited for this Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, May 4th. That's when you can see that premiere on Netflix. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my many, many guests that joined me this week. If you want more information about all of those shows or just past shows of, of mine, you want to do, you want to you know, sort of binge the podcast a little bit, you can go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whether it be Spotify, Google's, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, whatever, wherever you want to listen. If you just want to listen on our website, which I know a lot of you do, thank you so much for that follow on social media at down and nerdy 757 on twitter and instagram at down and nerdy on facebook at down and nerdy pod on tiktok follow me everywhere having a lot of fun with you and so glad to have you along for the ride remember you never have to apologize for being a nerd so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds contained herein are the heresies of radolf buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling-medical-investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.